0: It was one of the most stunning moments in Russia in years. Over the weekend, Moscow's military faced an armed revolt, and it happened from within. The Wagner Group, a mercenary force, marched towards Moscow, and they seemed to face no resistance.
1: And it was stunning that they were able to go this fast and, and you know, passed all through all the ro- roadblocks that, that Russian officials have been trying to put up. There were stunning images of tractors destroying highways on the way to Moscow.
0: Maria Lushna is a reporter covering Russia for The Post. She's in neighboring Latvia, where she watched this dramatic mutiny start and suddenly stop with a truce. But just because the dust has settled, Mary says trouble is not over for Russian President Vladimir Putin.
1: And in a way, I think it's a reckoning for sort of Vladimir Putin's government. And you know, a lot of questions are being raised whether he is still, you know, in control over all these fiefs that he has created over time, whether this promise that he constantly offered to the Russian people of stability and order can even be restored now because so many things seem to be going wrong. And Russia is just in chaos right now because now we had this armed rebellion, uh, something Russians, you know, haven't seen in a very long time. Uh, and that those are certainly probably one of the craziest 24 hours in Russia's modern history. From the newsroom of The
0: Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, June 26. Today, why the head of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, launched a rebellion in Russia? I speak with my colleague, national security reporter Shane Harris, about what happened and what this revolt could mean for Putin and the war in Ukraine. Shane, we're coming out of an incredibly dramatic weekend in Russia with this short-lived armed revolt. Can you recap for us what happened?
2: Sure, well, late Friday night, Washington time, uh, we started to see uh, rumblings that Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, which is a private military contractor or a mercenary group that's been essential to Russia's fighting in Ukraine, appeared to be making some kind of a march on Moscow. Tensions had been boiling over between him and the leadership of the uniformed military uh, in Russia for quite some time. He had accused them in recent days of firing on his forces. And the first move that he made was to roll into a city called Rostov-on-Dom, which is the essentially the nerve center of the Russian military operation in Ukraine. And with apparently little resistance, seized the military district headquarters there.
1: We are in the
0: and
2: we watched them launch this lightning strike run up the M4 highway on their way to Moscow, got within about 120 miles of the city, and then suddenly turned back. The president of Belarus has apparently negotiated a truce between Wagner and the Kremlin. And what we thought was going to be this potentially violent collision uh, actually has not come to pass. And now we are all left wondering what just happened.
0: I mean, given that it's short-lived and there was no real, like, he didn't overthrow Putin or anything, how remarkable or consequential was the fact that this happened? Can you put that into perspective for us?
2: This was the most direct challenge to Vladimir Putin's authority in decades. It revealed a remarkable, I think, weakness on his part. It demonstrated that uh, Prigozhin, this leader of a mercenary force, was able to directly challenge him. I mean, Putin had to go on national television and basically call on the military to put a stop to this revolt, this insurrection. Um, In so many ways, this demonstrated that Vladimir Putin does not have full authority over the government, over the military, and he is vulnerable to challenge.
0: Shane, why did Prigozhin do this? Was was this a coup attempt? Was this about challenging Vladimir Putin or were there other people that were at play here and that he was at odds with?
2: I think we shouldn't think of this as a coup in the sense that Prigozhin wasn't trying to depose Putin and take over the government. The people he wants out are the head of the Russian military, specifically Sergei Shoigu, who is the defense minister in Russia, and Valery Gerasimov, who is the general, who is the chief of the general staff, essentially the uniformed chief of the military. These are the people that we can think of as being in charge of the regular Russian military and the Russian military apparatus. The Wagner group, which Prigozhin leads, is an adjunct to that. It's a contractor force uh, of hired mercenaries, hired guns. This tension has really been between him and the military brass, and it has boiled over in recent weeks, particularly after the fall of Bakhmut, when Prigozhin has accused the Russian regular military of firing on his forces, of trying to kill them, essentially. Um, And this is kind of where we were going into the weekend, where the tensions between these men had reached a fever pitch. That's ultimately what pushed Prigozhin to act, we think.
0: What about Purgosian's political aspirations? Is there any sort of underlying scheming going on there that could explain why he did this when he did it?
2: There are some analysts who've questioned whether he, Purgosian, has eyes on being defense minister himself. At the same time, Progosian has been made very rich by the system that Putin runs rich as a private military contractor. Um, he has tremendous assets in Africa, where a lot of his and in the Middle East, where a lot of his fighters are deployed, where he has deals with governments to provide security in exchange for mineral rights, access to gold. Um, so while I think he might have some political aspiration, he also has this entire other infrastructure and empire that he's trying to preserve. He wants, you know, leadership in Russia That is going to be conducive to a his troops not getting ground up in Ukraine and dying for no reason, and b that is going to preserve you know the kind of the access to wealth and power that he has. So I think he's more interested perhaps in sidelining the people he sees as incompetent, maybe rather than directly replacing them. It's not at all clear to me that he would want to be president of Russia, but as is so often the case in Moscow, with with this kind of you know this Game of Thrones mentality, there's always questions about who might like to replace place Putin. And sometimes you hear Prigozhin's name mentioned in that conversation, too.
0: Shane, I know you've reported on the Wagner Group for a while now, but maybe for some folks, they're just tuning in and wondering, what is this mercenary group? How are they such big power players? And what's their relationship with the Kremlin? Can you tell us more about what we know of the Wagner Group?
2: They have predominantly been used in Africa and in the Middle East, where Prigozhin has these deals to provide security for governments. But importantly, that also has made the Wagner Group kind of an extension of the Russian military and even the Russian uh, military intelligence apparatus, where Putin has been able to see Wagner forces deployed in places where he doesn't want to put Russian troops on the ground. Sometimes it lets the Wagner Group do things that the Russian military wants to distance itself from, so there's a bit of deniability. So... Wagner has been useful to Putin as a kind of extension of his authority and his power, notably also in places like Syria, where a lot of those fighters have been on the ground. And it's made Prigozhin very, very rich.
0: So it sounds like they're almost like the Kremlin's private forces. What else have we learned in recent months, especially because there was this big leak of disclosure documents that came out that exposed more about this group and and what they've been accused of doing?
2: What we've learned a lot from these recent disclosures from uh, US, classified U.S. documents on Discord that we've been reporting on is that Wagner is probably even more of an essential component to the Russian military than people appreciate. Arguably, the Russian military would not be making any of the even moderate advances it is in Ukraine without the Wagner forces fighting for them. And where... Progosian's real strength comes from is that he's assembled, you know a fighting force that is, Nimble, highly skilled, they have military backgrounds of their own. Um, they are deployed in these African and Middle Eastern countries, having their own deals with governments there. And the Wagner Group has been implicated in human rights abuses and war crimes in the Central African Republic. Um, their fighting in Ukraine has been has been merciless, as as the Russian military's. Notably, according to my sources, Prigozhin did not bring a lot of those fighters up to fight in Ukraine. It was as if he wasn't really ready to waste his best men. On a war effort that even he regards as, you know, inept. It's not to say he doesn't support the war in Ukraine, but he thinks it's being prosecuted the wrong way. So he has been going through recruiting from the prisons, trying to build an army of his own. That has not sat well with the Russian military leadership. And yes, the Kremlin does sort of, you know, cut his checks. And to a certain degree, Wagner depends on the Ministry of Defense to supply him with ammunitions, with weapons. He's complained they're not doing that enough, that they're essentially not giving his fighters the support that they need on the ground. That too has created tensions and pitted his army against theirs, or at least the leadership of those two forces. So the political tensions and the dynamics here are one where you've got... Prigozhin leading a private army that's like a quasi-official force of the Kremlin versus the actual military. Prigozhin has been kind of a master of public relations in all of this. He's gone on Telegram to complain about the military leadership and most recently to tell the Russian people that these military leaders are lying to them about how badly it's going.
0: Shane, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Prigozhin?
2: So, Prigozhin met Putin in the early 2000s um, after Prigozhin got out of prison, where he did about a 10 year stint. And they met when uh, Prigozhin was providing food services. He famously became the chef to the Kremlin, sometimes called Putin's chef. So, so he, he, he was like content. in
0: food services? <laughs> That's how he, he was? got his start?
2: He was a restaurateur. Uh, uh, reportedly he had a hot dog stand at one point, which he conveyed into a series of convenience stores, I believe. But yes, he got into like you know, the restaurant and catering business. And this is when he first becomes introduced to Putin. Um, that relationship, though, obviously, is, is, is often shorthanded as he's Putin's chef, but it becomes much more consequential uh, in the 2016 presidential election. Purgosian uh, is in charge of an operation called the Internet Research Agency, which is a troll farm, which is distributing propaganda on U.S. social media to interfere with the 2016 election, which was an operation that Putin authorized. Uh, so in addition to being a private mercenary force, and that really is his most important role to Putin, he's also sort of a, of a propagandist, if you like, for Putin. So their relationship is, is, much, more, is much deeper and, and more multifaceted than it was when they met You know, more than 20 years ago
0: and i wonder if that also is one reason why he represents such a threat because he knows how to manage public image and propaganda and that is such a big part of all this right
2: absolutely and and, and putin is someone who understands the value of that very well both of these people understand The Russian people, they understand these dynamics. And I have to say that I think that Prigozhin is outplaying Putin right now. Uh, You know, Putin controls the levers of state media. There's no doubt about that. And to a large extent, he can try to control what the Russian people understand about the war in Ukraine and how it's going. What Prigozhin has understood is that social media exists now, and Mm. Telegram in particular, and Russians are on Telegram. It is a very popular uh, form of getting information that the state does not want citizens to see. And that is where Purgotin has been basically broadcasting to the people directly and saying, our leaders are lying to you. And when he does it, we see him out there in these combat fatigues with a helmet. He's out there in the field basically saying, don't listen to these guys in Moscow. You know, the elites and their children are running around, you know, free. And it's all of you and the poor people of Russia whose sons, whose sons are suffering here. And I know because I'm out here with them.
0: And what has Progozhin said himself in the aftermath of this armed mutiny?
2: He posted an 11 minute audio statement on Monday, uh, claiming that he launched this rebellion because his fighters were about to be absorbed by the Russian military. And to kind of catch people up, back on June 10th, the Russian military announced that private military contractors in Ukraine, i.e. Wagner fighters, were going to have to sign up with the regular Russian military, essentially become Russian military soldiers and no longer private mercenaries. And this appears to be kind of a last straw for Prigozhin, who, remember, has this tremendous feud with the leaders of the Russian military.
0: Why does it matter that Wagner group forces would sign up with the Russian military. What's the difference between fighting for one or the other?
2: Well, for Boghossian, it means he loses his business. Uh, you know, the private military forces, that is how he makes his money. That's how he has extended this kind of empire that he's building into Africa and in the Middle East. Uh, the military would like to absorb those forces because they would like to diminish Prigozhin's power. They want to take this away from him. So I think that the absorption of of them, this attempt to take the private military contractors away from him, that is illustrative of this big power struggle that you see between Gerasimov and Shoigu on one hand and Prigozhin on the other.
0: So, Shane, it does appear at this point that Prigozhin has turned his forces around. He did it suddenly. There was reportedly a truce struck by the president of Belarus. What do we know about how this mutiny ended? How do we know it? Because it does seem mysterious, and what unanswered questions does it leave you with?
2: So, yes, this crisis seemed to end abruptly uh, on Sunday with this uh, announcement of some kind of a truce organized by the president of Belarus, Lukashenko. And all we know at this point is that the deal says that Progoshen is supposed to decamp to Belarus, be in some kind of exile there, and that the Kremlin will drop the charges against him that have been initiated after he sparked this revolt. And that's according to largely state media <laughs> in Belarus and in Russia. So we had to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. What we understand right now, though, is that it's not at all clear that Prigozhin has gone to Belarus. It's not at all clear that the Russian government has, in fact, dropped its prosecution or investigation of Prigozhin. So right now, we are sort of left to wait and see, is this truce actually going to hold, or are we about to see a reigniting of this conflict and this crisis that we saw play out over the weekend.
0: After the break, what the Wagner mutiny tells us about Putin's hold on power. We'll be right back.
1: Hey, this is Christina Quinn.
2: Shane, this is
0: remarkable that this happened in some ways because, I don't know, it has felt like for so long that Vladimir Putin was this force in Russia who could not be challenged, especially when it came to the war in Ukraine. So even if this rebellion was short-lived, what does it say about his grip on power? What has your reporting revealed?
2: I think what this shows is that Vladimir Putin's hold on power is tenuous. It was a moment that harkened back to the early 90s, you know, in Russia when we saw, you know, violent uh, um, jockeying for power. People were wondering, could this be the beginning of the end for Putin? These were questions that I don't think would have come to our mind, you know, even a couple of weeks ago. I mean, yes, we saw Prigozhin in this feud openly challenging the military leadership of Russia and, you know, by extension, implicitly Putin as well, But Putin didn't do anything. He didn't try to silence him. He didn't try to stop him. And I think a lot of analysts looked at that and said, well, this is just classic Putin. He likes to have different centers of power. He even likes it when uh, um, these different uh, uh, powerful figures are vying against each other. He likes this competition. He is somehow the master puppet pulling the strings. But then Prigozhin comes in and says, not so fast, Hmm. and challenges him. And very quickly, Vladimir Putin has to go on national television, address the country, We won't let it happen again. We will protect our people and our statehood from any threats, including treason from the inside. What we are facing now is treason. Say these are traitors, demand the military put them down. They don't, by the way, Um, at least not right away. It hasn't come to that conflict. But you saw, I think, when you looked at Putin in that address, he looked shaken and the mere fact that he had to go on national television and try to put a stop to what was happening tells you, I think, that he understood he was getting out of control.
0: Yeah, the fact that Pergosian was able to mount this mutiny and it did get so far, in some ways, you know, it does speak to where the thinking around the war in Ukraine is among the elites. But what about the current state of public support in Russia more broadly for the war in Ukraine? And does that matter at all with this? Or Is this really just about where the elites and the leaders stand on this war?
2: I do think it's really hard to gauge with any real certainty what public support for the war is, because I'm not sure polling is reliable. But we're not seeing, for instance, massive protests in the street about the war. Um, you know, reporting on the war is not Really accurate, <laughs> or, within or even, Russia. Within Russia, exactly. Right. So it does seem that most Russians are going about their lives, uh, seemingly unaffected by this. Of course, they understand there are sanctions, um, but they're they're kind of pushing forward. It is also the case that most of the troops that are fighting and dying in Ukraine are not coming from the more privileged. Uh, middle and upper classes of Russia. They're coming from more ethnic Russians. They're coming from parts of the country far from Moscow. I mean, they're sending essentially the marginalized people of Russia to go fight this war. So those kind of elite classes in Moscow or St. Petersburg aren't feeling the pinch the way other people in Russia might be feeling it. When I say the elite, what I'm really talking about here is, you know, not only people in the Russian leadership, but the oligarch class, you know, the business class, these sort of, you know, these so-called military bloggers or people who are sort of given free reign to write on the internet, but they kind of know they're doing it at the behest of the state or with some state control. You can see where all of these people, and they give comments sometimes to us, you know, even anonymously at the Post, understand that the war has gone, it's in a disaster, and that that is not something that you will hear on the airwaves of state media. So if those people start feeling that now is a time where they start talking openly about this and are criticizing Putin, that starts to undermine his position in the eyes of the Russian people when that elite class starts to turn. And that's something that intelligence officials in the West now are looking for. And Prigozhin is kind of, you know, the the leading indicator of that right now, I think.
0: Yeah. And it's worth noting that any criticism in Russia about the Ukrainian war effort would be subjected to harsh crackdowns. Shane, looking ahead, How will this short-lived mutiny impact Russia's war effort in Ukraine? And, And what have Ukrainian leaders said about it?
2: Well, one big question it it augurs for what happens in Ukraine is Does this mean that the Wagner forces are no longer fighting in Ukraine, where they've proved so instrumental? If that's the case, that's going to be a negative for the Russian military because they're not going to have those agile, arguably more experienced fighters, number one. But what's also really interesting, and Ukrainian officials that I've spoken to over the weekend, and you've seen President Zelensky even saying this, are really leaning into this moment to say, Look, now is the time, give us more weapons. Европы тримається лише на нашій обороні. Longer-range weapons, the kinds of weapons we've been asking, you know, Ukraine of the West and of the U.S. to really take the fight and try and liberate our territories because Putin is weak. What this shows you is that he's not 100 feet tall. He's not going to use a nuclear weapon to save his skin. The Ukrainians, I think, want to take advantage of this moment because they see Putin as vulnerable, maybe more vulnerable than he's ever been in his reign to say, you know, put the pedal to the metal here. Give us more weapons, Back us, and let's finish this uh, this war
0: and Shane in your reporting, I'm curious whether any analysts intelligence officials are now mapping out and gaming out how Putin might respond to this brief insurrection to remain in power. Is it that he really is weakened, or might he crack down even harder, or will he just simply, you know, sort of reorganize his military leadership? What are the the potential scenarios here, and what indications do we have of what might happen next?
2: One is that Putin, uh, you know, sort of feeling that he's weak and threatened, exercises an even more brutal crackdown, you know, crackdown on the media, maybe curfews, uh, limiting of rights even more than they already are. That's that's one potential scenario. Another, and this is something that people are, I don't want to say predicting, but are, are really eyeing very, very closely because it might be an obvious Kind of path for Putin is to go ahead and shake up that military leadership and remove Shuegu or Gerasimov, these kind of top people, um, as a way of maybe signaling to that elite class, okay, I get it. Let's bring some new leadership in here. Let's start charting a new direction. At the same time, if he does that, he is potentially going to be seen as giving in to Prigozhin's demands. He will be acknowledging that Prigozhin's criticism was valid. Um, if he doesn't go that route of changing things up, though, the war is just going to keep going in the direction that it has been. So he really does not have great options. And any a leader is cornered, you know, this makes you know officials in other countries very very nervous. And so right now, what people are watching very closely to do, why they're watching so closely what Putin is about to do, is not just that it tells us, you know, about what the next moves might be in the war in Ukraine, but about the stability of his own regime. And Washington is very nervous about a power struggle in Moscow.
0: Why? Why why does that make them nervous? Wouldn't it be beneficial to the United States' interests for Putin to be weakened and that there be a power struggle?
2: Maybe. But the problem is, is the guy who replaces him might be worse. (laughs) Hmm. Right, So right now, Putin is sort of the devil that Washington knows uh, and has known him for a long time and has a sense of how he operates. If there's a power struggle and someone comes in that wants to prosecute the war in, in Ukraine more forcefully, um, it, it is potentially more dangerous than Putin, that's potentially bad news for the West. It's really, though, about this uncertainty that this creates. Instability breeds uncertainty, which makes people nervous. Because let's remember, Russia is a nuclear armed country with still a very big military. And if we go back to the very beginning of the war back in February of last year, the thing that Washington really, really wanted to avoid was pulling NATO members into a direct conflict with Russia and the potential that Russia could respond with use of nuclear weapons on the battlefield. So if there's a power struggle in Russia and that sort of, you know, that nuclear football, to use the metaphor, is loose and no one knows who actually has their hands on it, That is a really terrifying scenario for policymakers here.
0: Is it fair to say now that there has been a falling out that is irreparable between the Wagner Group and the official Russian military and leadership? And if that's the case, what are the implications beyond Russia and Ukraine? Because the Wagner Group is involved in a lot of other countries doing a lot of other things, which include, you know, being accused of war crimes.
2: Yeah, I don't see how Prigozhin and Putin put the pieces back together here. Um, you know, Prigozhin directly challenged Russian military leadership, and by extension, I would argue, presidential leadership. I think Prigozhin will probably be looking over his shoulder for a long time, whether he's in Belarus or in any other country, because there's a great incentive for Putin to kill him, to, to eliminate him. Um, but What this means, I think, you know, for Putin and Prigozhin is that you now have potentially two rivals. Um, What does he do next? Does he continue to try and challenge authority in Moscow? He has these fighters, he has influence in the Middle East and in Africa in places that, you know, Putin wants to extend influence. So you may start to see a kind of dispersion even of this power struggle between the two of them. I think what we saw in this head-spinning 36-hour period This is really act one of some much bigger play. I don't know when act two is going to happen, but like we're in the intermission right now. And, you know, behind the curtain, they're changing the scenery and everyone's doing a costume change. And and we're getting a smoke break. Very quickly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, get your drinks at the bar. Um, Act two could begin in weeks, months. It could begin right away. Um, We just don't know. And I think that we all are just kind of waiting on pins and needles here to see. But, there is going to be a second act. This is not just going to be, I think, a static situation for months and years. Something, Another shoe is going to drop. We just don't know when.
0: Well, Shane, thank you so much for unpacking all of this for us. I, I really appreciate it.
2: Happy to do it.
0: Shane Harris is a national security reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. Thanks to Mary Alushna, Rena Flores, Ariel Plotnick, and Gabe O'Connor. I also want to tell you about something really cool happening here at The Post. For the next four days, The Washington Post has dropped its paywall. Up until midnight Thursday, you can access as many free articles as you want, from in-depth international reporting to dinner recipes— All you have to do is enter your email address when prompted. Go to WashingtonPost.com for more. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.